This is a Texas Poets Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Soros. Each month, we interview a well-known Texas poet to learn about the writing of poetry, the poetic landscape of Texas, and a poem written by another Texas poet. Today's program features Alan Birkelbach. Alan Lee Birkelbach is the 2005 Texas Poet Laureate. As well as being highly published in anthologies and journals, he has written 10 books of poetry. His latest is called Meridian Vert and is published by Purple Flag Press. Alan was born in Georgetown, Texas, currently lives in Louisville, Texas, and is a graduate of North Texas State University with a B.A. in English. Alan worked in the insurance and finance industries for 22 years. He has won many awards, with his latest being the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here today. Alan, who are some of your favorite Texas poets, and what role have they had in your own work? You know, favorite Texas poets, that's a really tough question. Um, I have lots of favorites. Uh, The landscape of Texas poetry is so diverse. Uh, There are lots of living poets right now, Jim Hoggard, Larry Thomas, Carla Morton, especially Walt McDonald. Uh, My my admiration for Texas poetry isn't limited to laureates, so uh, there's Naomi Nye and Wendy Barker and Frederick Turner, Brian Clements, Bruce Bond. There's so many other good ones, um, and there's so many that have that have passed on. Uh, for instance, like today, William Barney, we're going to be talking about him, but also uh, Grace Noel Kroll, uh, Carl Wilson Baker, Jack Myers. These are all Texas poets that I refer back to again and again and again. What influence have they had on me? That's a whole other question. Um, so I believe absolutely that... If I appear tall, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. And all of these works have influenced me. There's always some poems of these people that I refer back to. Um, I read William Barney constantly. I'm reading Walt MacDonald constantly. There are individual poems. There's one by Naomi Nye about an onion that ends, for the sake of others, disappear. Um, The magic in that one line alone is amazing. So I can't necessarily narrow it down to one poet or one poem, but I can say all of these poets have influenced me. We don't exist in a vacuum. We all listen to each other's voices. Well, you're certainly generous in acknowledging those various influences. Alan, each month we invite our guest poet to share a poem by another Texas poet. What poem have you chosen, and does it need any words of introduction by you? Yes, the poem that I've chosen is by William Barney, who was the Poet Laureate of Texas in 1982. The poem is called The Pleiades, and it's from his book called Long Gone to Texas. It was a prize winner from the early part of the 1980s. Um, The Pleiades is a constellation that, if you know your mythology at all, there were seven sisters. And... Actually, it would be better if you hear the poem first, and then I can go and tell you why that poem is so exquisite. Great. Let's (coughs) listen now to a performance of the poem. The Pleiades by William D. Barney. There is a tarnish slurring that abyss, more honestly, 
the reek of city men that fogs are billion-leagued, our vaulting look, and glazes the most willing eye. Time comes when you slip that pole and find a country air, and you see the Pleiades, the sisterhood, lying at ease by night under the stare of unobstructed stars. You know the hour the Pleiades arise in all their sevenness. Nothing has been added. When the city five or faintly six, your eye will blink and guess at eight and even nine. There is no end to the Pleiades, once in their element, no limit how the mind with fire is streaked clear of that cloud, that sloven cataract. That was Dan Williams of TCU Press reading William Barney's The Pleiades. Thanks, Dan. The bio for William Barney can go on for pages, but I can tell you that he was named the Poet Laureate of Texas in 1982. He was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he attended TCU. He started working with the U.S. Postal Service in 1936, and he retired finally after 35 years there. So he actually had a full-time job, and he wrote poetry on the side. He was a keen observer of nature like Robert Frost, uh, and his poetry is exquisite. He knew the rules of formalism up and down, backwards and sideways, and yet he would break the rules to make a more exquisite poem. And that's what's happening in this particular poem. Uh, while you can't see it on the radio, the poem reads like a sonnet. But there are actually 15 lines. He has managed to embed the lot, the end rhyme so well that it looks seamless. In fact, that's one of his quotes in one of his other books. He says, practice unceasingly so you may achieve an unstudied art. And that's exactly what he did in this poem. Uh, the poem is written in iams, that it's a constantly a bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum. But they're so smooth, and the words are so natural, you never realize that he's done that. Uh, but this topic, this type of tone, is typical of all of Barney's work. He is very much a, uh, an observer of nature. He makes the very nature of things holy, and he makes us step back and observe and say, oh, I want to see that myself. Is there an argument in this poem, and can you sum up that argument for us? Yes. I think uh, in terms of an argument, I would say um, he starts out with opening the statement saying, man may have obstructed our own view into nature, that if we are willing to step outside the boundaries of what, uh, boundaries of what has clouded our vision, we still can see the wonder that is nature out there. His craft is so exquisite that right around the sixth line, the poem turns, and you no longer have to worry about the view that man has clouded, and then it all becomes a personal responsibility to view the nature that is out there. And it's always available to those who choose to pursue it, to, to walk away from the urban environment. Exactly, very much so. The phrasing sloven cataract at the end, what a great combination of words because it, it implies that uh, it is up to the individual to um, make the effort. Yeah, cataract is such an ending, such a great ending sound. Um, 
True, truly, our vision has been clouded. He manages to have that great parallel structure between the opening and the closing on that particular work. It's just amazing work. But the poem is an evolution of some uh, sense of imprisonment to a sense of, of liberation and freedom. There's a wonderful movement from the beginning to the end, isn't there? Oh, an, an incredible movement. He, he manages to keep this steady pace up with it, that, that iambic beat, and he very gently leads us to this awareness that if we take personal responsibility, we can still find the beauty that is out there. It's, this is typical of William Barney's work. He's got, he's got some other books out there. He's got a book out there called Words from a Wide Land. It's illustrated, and it's also words. It's his journal where he goes day by day through the year explaining this is why this piece of nature is so exquisite. I can't begin to describe how good he is. I have a couple questions about possible obscurities here. Line four, the most willing eye. Do you think that it is the individual who is most willing to be glazed over or the individual who is most willing to not be glazed over and to see clearly? I think probably what he's talking about there. He's trying to address the people that want to see it. That, and because the next line says, time comes when you slip that pall. And uh, it's like, you have to make the decision, even as eager as you are to see the Pleiades, you have to make the decision, you have to make the effort, you have to take the ownership of actually seeing what it's like. So he's addressing those people that want and need to have it. Mm-hmm. And then he encourages them to go, Go pursue it. Go pursue it. And then once you're out, out there and actually looking at it, he says there later in the poem, you know, where the city five or faintly six, your eye will blink and guess at eight or even nine. In other words, you start imagining there's more than just the seven sisters. So you fall into the, uh, the wonder that is the stars in the heavens. Well, now you've just clarified another section of the poem that is a little bit obscure, I think, and needs some elucidation. So lines 12 and 13, there is no end to Pleiades once in their element. What is he saying there? Well, what's he, what's he saying? It's related to that earlier line. He says, when your eye will blink and guess at eight or even nine, it's like you start imagining because the stars, the heavens become so deep, you think that there's stars beyond the stars, beyond the stars. Our eyes even has their clouded over. Maybe from the side, you tilt your head a little bit, and your eyes, everybody's eyes, see a little bit better on the edges. So you, you start tilting your head, and you start seeing more than you thought you saw before, even though they're, if, if they're not even there. But he says there is no end to Pleiades, because beyond those Pleiades, there are more stars, and more stars beyond that. So he actually draws us into the depth of the wonder. Is the poem about the Pleiades, or... It- does he use the Pleiades as a metaphor? He's using the Pleiades as a device, mm-hmm. right? Yes, it is a metaphor, but it's a device. So he uses something very particular, something that everyone's familiar <laughs> with and is easily observable to suggest something broader, something more abstract. It's important to, <clears throat> to look up and experience the vastness of the heavens and not uh, live in that fog that most of us live in. Well, exactly. That's exactly what he would do. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this poem? I can only say that this is only one of the exquisite 
poems that William Barney has written. He's got several others. There's one that's called Bull Snake Under Belknap Bridge that is just startling. It's just breathtaking. Um, but he has he has several books out there, so I would encourage anyone to please go find books by William Barney. Ellen, we also want to ask you to read one of your own poems for us. I would love to. Rather than set this up, I'll just go ahead and read the poem, then I'll explain it a little bit more afterwards. This poem is called, You Should Be Here, Marion Moore. You should be here, Marion Moore, to explain this mystery. A bird has built his nest in that mesquite tree yonder. Brave thing, or foolish more like. Regardless, there's no feline that I know gaunt enough to squander paws on a misstep. Too chancy, too slick a bark. Too meager a mouthful for the trip down. But more, what zephyr led that bird through mealy, prickly maze? What secret knowledge was it that guaranteed its privacy, guarded fledgling chicks? What fatigue of wing, what urgency, what sight? I saw a telling photo of you once, Marianne. You were bent over, furtive almost, standing beside a herd of elephants caught in the act, listening sagely private, learning ancient rhythms that the most of us won't know. I wonder, Marianne, if you join me rocking on this porch, would you dissemble twig by twig for me that nest? Would you describe gentle gray footfalls? Or would, or would you close your eyes, sigh, rock, and say, how the wise and bored sing song, sing song. Thank you, Alan. I really like the way the poem you selected from your own body of work engages with Barney's poem. On a smaller scale, he's encouraging us to look up into the heavens, and you want us to look to the tree next to the porch. That's exactly what I was trying to do here. It's uh, Again, it was never about... Marion Moore, and it's never about the bird in the mesquite tree. It's a matter, let's pay attention. There's a lot to wonder at out there. The mysteries on the microcosmic scale as opposed to the macrocosmic scale. Very much so, yes, I agree. But you seem less optimistic than Barney is about the ability to see into life's mysteries. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty telling comment. The, the tone is a little different because I have more questions in this poem. He doesn't have any questions at all in his poem. Just look up to the heavens. His is very much a declarative statement all mm -hmm. the way through. And my, my poem is full of questions. There's questions all the way through mm -hmm. there because I am still looking, in this particular poem, I am still looking for answers. Well, it's been such a pleasure to visit with you today, Alan. I look forward to reading more of your work. I believe you have a book coming out from Texas Review Press called Walking the Bones. Is that right? Yes, it's called Waking the Bones. Oh, Waking the Bones. Waking okay. the Bones. And uh, yes, I do, actually. It's a, a greatest hits type of book. Um, Texas Review Press, Press is putting out greatest hits books from all the current Texas Poet Laureates. And the uh, cover is a bunch of cow skulls. The photo was taken by Carla Morton. It's. I love the cover. It's. It's so amazing. It's almost. It's got this huge spiral effect to it, 
But since it's a greatest hits type of book, I thought Waking the Bones is a perfect one because there's poems in there that date back 30 years that I haven't looked at in forever. So I'm anxious for that book to come out. I can't wait to read it. This has been a Texas Poets Podcast featuring Alan Berkelbach. Texas Poets Podcast was created by Terry Jude Miller and is produced by Ann McCready at InSpiritTree.com. Support for Texas Poets Podcast is provided by Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. The music for this show was performed by Ed and Mim Freighter. I'm your host, Stephen Soros. Join us each month for a new segment in the Texas Poets Podcast series to learn more about the poets of Texas. Texas.